Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MABC Women's Bible Study Podcast. Last week, Eva led us through chapter 13. We saw Jesus teach through parables about the kingdom of heaven. It's not a coincidence that immediately after this teaching, we see a spectrum of responses to the kingdom, to Jesus. At the end of chapter 13, we see Jesus be rejected in his hometown. We see unbelief, hard hearts, like the hard soil Jesus just taught about. Matthew 14 is a pivotal chapter. Jesus is about two years into his public ministry and is at the most northern point in Galilee. From here, he works his way back to Jerusalem, to his death. With one year left of his time on earth, we see him begin to focus even more on teaching the disciples right around him. When I think of Matthew 14, I think of epic drama. There is enough content and juicy drama for a Hollywood movie. We will hear about the gruesome death of John the Baptist. We will see Jesus feed thousands from a small lunch. And we will witness Jesus walk on water, culminating in the disciples' proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God. Are you ready, ladies? Grab your Bibles and let's dig in together. My prayer is that through this chapter, we will see Jesus more clearly and our faith will be strengthened and lead to worship. So it's been 408 days. A little over a year ago, our world was flipped upside down. What started with a toilet paper shortage turned into two weeks to flatten the curve to months of not seeing family, long days of navigating online learning, and the stress of working from home. Our routines and holidays blown to smithereens and our dear loved ones at risk. This year has been a long, grueling trial. And just when we feel like it is lightening up, Everything comes to a screeching halt. And here we are in another serious lockdown. Ladies, I don't mean to depress you, but just to identify the reality of our present circumstances, this season has felt like an unpredictable storm. We often feel weak and beaten down by the waves. What has been your anchor in this seemingly never-ending storm? What do you cling to so as not to be flung about to and fro by the raging wind? Where are your eyes fixed? In what do you put your faith? Or should I say, in who do you put your faith? In today's chapter, we will see that having faith in Jesus is not about mustering up more faith, believing harder, or trusting more. What is key is not the measure of our faith, but the object of our faith. Do we see Jesus rightly during this trial? I pray that the Holy Spirit will use the following verses to remind us of the attributes of Jesus, which will help us to persevere through the storm. I've broken down this chapter into four parts. Verse 1 to 12, the hard soil of Herod's heart. Verse 13 to 21, Jesus feeds the thousands. Verse 22 to 33, Jesus walks on water. Ending with verse 34 to 36, the fruitful soil of Genesaret. All right, let's look at verse 1 to 12, which I've titled The Hard Soil of Herod's Heart. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying, 
to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because it but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So here, immediately after Jesus finished teaching, we hear of two stories of rejection or hard soil. In his hometown, in chapter 13, and in the heart of Jerusalem here by Herod. Here we see Herod the Tetrarch, his present fear of Jesus sent him on a flashback of when he killed John the Baptist. Herod is haunted and thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist, raised from the dead. He sees the signs, miraculous powers, and it doesn't lead him to faith, but instead his heart is hardened. Although this is very sad, this isn't necessarily surprising given the moral corruption of Herod's family. Hollywood, eat your heart out. In this family, there is adultery, divorce, backstabbing, deceit, and high-handed political maneuverings. There is so much juicy drama in this passage to supply the script for an HBO miniseries. So the flashback begins in verse 3. Cue the reflective music and fade back into Herod's memory. The first thing we learn is that John was imprisoned for the sake of Herodias. This requires some backstory, so let's review some of the key players. So Herod the Tetrarch, or Antipas, was the Roman ruler over the region where Jesus ministered. His father was Herod the Great. Does he sound familiar? Well, unfortunately, he's known for commanding the killing of the two-year-old Jewish boys back in Matthew 2. I'm sure growing up with Herod the Great as your dad would make you a little messed up. Herod the Great had many wives and children, which led him to grow insanely suspicious, so much so that he had many of them murdered, executed, or assassinated. There was a popular saying at the time, it is safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Gives you a little context for Herod Antipas. So Herod Antipas, the main character in the story, fell in love with Herodias, the wife of his half-brother, Herod Philip I. Now don't be fooled, this is no sweet love story. Herod Antipas was already married at the time, but that was no obstacle for him. He divorced his first wife in order to marry Herodias who also divorced her husband. Yeah, she was also married. If that wasn't scandal enough, Herodias was technically Herod Antipas's niece and sister-in-law. Now she was also his wife. So try to get your head around that. So if you had trouble tracking, we see here an unlawful marriage and a corrupt family tree. So this scandal must have been common knowledge because even John out in the wilderness had heard about it and he wasn't afraid to speak out against sin. This was typical of John. We see him lay it on the Pharisees in Matthew 3. And in true John fashion, we see him call it as it is in verse 4, saying, It is not lawful for you to have her. He persistently pointed out that it was an illegal marriage. And as you can imagine, he got in Herodias' bad books. John was on her blacklist and was put in prison because he was a threat to her marriage, publicly condemning it. We see here that speaking truth and calling out sin for what it is will be costly. 
especially in our current post-Christian culture. I also think of our brothers and sisters in other countries where they are imprisoned and killed for speaking truth. Sadly, we will see the lengths to which Herodias will go to protect her sin. Now we get to Herod's birthday party, which seems more like a crude bachelor party. Here we see Herod pleased, speaking of his lust, by his daughter's most likely sensual dance. Scholars say the daughter would have been around 12 to 14 years old. That's disturbing, but unfortunately quite normal given the outrageous morals of the Herodians. Herod was ruled by appetite and pleasure. Enthralled with the present moment, Herod makes a rash promise. And when Herodias' daughter took advantage of his foolish oath and requested the head of John the Baptist, we see Herod's fear of man over God. Carson says it like this, Like most weak men, Herod feared to be thought weak. He didn't want to lose faith. His oath should never have been made or kept. This oath is in stark contrast to his marriage oath he thought he could so easily break. Herod let his pride lead him to beheading God's prophet, a punishment that did not even remotely match the crime, and without a trial, I might add. O'Donnell sums it up this way. Her seductive dance, his foolish oath, her gruesome request, and five minutes later, John is dead. His head is served, everyone gasps, but then the music starts again, the drinks flow, and Herod's birthday party marches on. These were hard-hearted people. Herod saw the signs and still remained hard-hearted. John's message was repent, turn from sin. The message of repentance was at the heart of John's ministry, and it was the primary reason he was killed. Sadly, the hard soil of Herod's heart leads him to be involved in another death, the trial and crucifixion of the Son of God. This can be a warning to us. Are we quick to repent? Are we bringing our sin to our Savior? Or do we hold it close and protect it like Herodias? Are we people marked by confession? And how do we respond to criticism, especially when someone points out my failure or sin? I maybe don't have the power to imprison them, but if looks could kill, this passage is such a good reminder to have a soft heart to correction and repentance. The lyrics from Oh Great God comes to mind. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. If you're listening today, don't harden your hearts. Dealing with sin is painful, but leads to restoration. This section ends with John the Baptist's disciples burying him and traveling to inform and warn Jesus. The chapter began with Herod receiving a report on Jesus, and it ends with Jesus receiving a report on Herod. Let's move to the next section. Jesus feeds the thousands, verses 13 to 21. Now, when Jesus, had heard, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed them. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, 
They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the grass and take the five loaves. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. For most of you, this passage is familiar. It is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels, so it gets a lot of airtime. If you are like me, it's easy to lose the awe that should be associated with this miracle. My prayer for us today is that we would see the miracle with fresh eyes. At the beginning, I mentioned how Jesus is focusing even more on teaching his disciples because his time on earth is diminishing. We are going to look at this passage through the eyes of the disciples and what Jesus is trying to teach them specifically. So often I look at this passage from the viewpoint of the crowd, but the disciples were learning so much. So this passage begins with Jesus withdrawing to a desolate place to be by himself. Can anyone relate? Any mom withdrawing to the bathroom to find solace? How many times have you seen your kids entertained and thought you could catch a moment to relax? And then the moment you sit down, they come running, Mom! (laughs) And what's your initial response? Well, I know mine doesn't always tend to be compassionate. Usually I'm a little entitled or irritated. If anyone had the right to say, I'm tired, please go home. It was Jesus. But he responded in compassion. Instead of shooing them away, Jesus had compassion on the crowd. This reveals so much about the heart of our Lord. Psalm 103.13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. This leads us to discipleship training lesson number one. Disciples are to reflect his compassion. How do we respond to those around us? Do we selfishly protect our time and resources? Or are we moved with compassion for those in need? Now we get to the problem. The evening was approaching in a desolate place and there was no food. We see the disciples. Practical response. Hmm, we can hit two birds with one stone. The crowd can go find their own food and we can finally get a break. However, we see Jesus turn it back to them and say, you feed them. You provide for their needs. From a human perspective, this sounds ridiculous. They only had a small lunch of fish, most likely pickled or dry, and loaves of bread. Jesus was calling them to do something that they didn't have the resources to do, to serve in a way they could never do on their own. This leads us to lesson number two. Disciples are to recognize their insufficiency. I personally don't have to think hard about a time when I felt insufficient. I feel it daily as a mother, but maybe you feel it at work or caring for an elderly parent, or serving the church? Are there certain needs that seem overwhelming? Well, that is where Jesus wants you to be, to see your need and rely on him. In verse 17, the disciples say, we only have five loaves here and two fish. I love how David Platt puts it. Going to Jesus and saying, we don't have enough, is like standing at Niagara Falls and wondering, how we will ever find a drink of water. It's so preposterous, right? 
The disciples don't even know the majesty and power that is standing right in front of them. Next, we see Jesus respond and say, bring them to me. He takes the lunch and blesses it. And in what can only be described as a miracle, Jesus multiplies the five loaves and two fish to feed the crowd of thousands, most likely 15 to 20,000 if you count the women and children. That's like the size of the Air Canada Center, packed. In verse 20, it says they all ate and were satisfied. They ate until they couldn't eat anymore. Jesus provided abundantly. This leads to lesson three. Disciples are to recognize his sufficiency. Nothing is too hard for Jesus. He is the Lord of creation. His power reveals his identity. He is the new and better Moses who supplies the needs of his people. He is all sufficient. We can go to him in our insufficiency and be satisfied. He has supplied our greatest need, our need for salvation. Through Jesus' finished work on the cross, we can be made right with God and have eternal life with him. The sweet thing is, Jesus didn't just come to save us from our sins. He came to satisfy our souls. We were created to enjoy and delight in God. We need to stop looking at the things of this world to satisfy. No one, nothing else will satisfy. Not another child, not a better job, not a bigger house. This stuff is temporary and will leave us wanting more. Only Jesus can satisfy the longing of our hearts. He is sufficient. Now, have you ever wondered why the miracle played out the way it did? Jesus could have just called bread down from heaven into the laps of every person. Anything is possible for Jesus. But instead, Jesus gave the food to the disciples to hand out. I wonder what it looked like. Did the food multiply before their eyes or just keep replenishing in a subtle way? But what a blessing for the disciples to be used and witness Jesus' power. Which leads to lesson four. Jesus uses disciples to meet needs. God uses us. We are his hands and feet to the lost and hurting world. In his mysterious plan, he graciously uses us broken people to meet needs and point people to him. How is God meeting needs through you? You are standing in front of Niagara Falls and there are people who are thirsty. There is a lot you can do. Because it is not dependent on our resources, it's dependent on his. I'm not sure the exact reason for the leftovers, but it's not a coincidence that the 12 baskets left over and there were also 12 disciples. This is a beautiful picture. As we give our lives to meet the needs of others, Jesus will also meet our needs. Okay, so let's review the lessons. As disciples... We are to reflect his compassion, recognize our insufficiency, realize his sufficiency, and be used to meet the needs of others. In this section, the disciples are learning to model their ministries after Jesus' compassion and to believe in his power to multiply their resources. What current area of need or insufficiency can you commit to trust to his provision? Where can you trust his sufficiency in your life? Okay, let's see what God has to teach us through another epic miracle. Jesus walks on water. 
verses 22 to 33. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, it is you. Command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus starts by sending his disciples on a boat across the lake, dismissing the crowds, and then finally getting them peace and quiet. While Jesus was praying on the mountain, the disciples entered a storm. Verse 24 says the boat was beaten by the waves and the wind. The fourth watch of the night was around 3 to 6 a.m. So the disciples had been battling this storm for most of the night. I love verse 25. Even though Jesus was up the mountain, he knew all about their trouble and came to them. What a great picture of Jesus coming to our rescue. When they saw him, they thought he was a ghost. And can you blame him? Can you blame them? They were probably exhausted from the storm and thought they were hallucinating. And as soon as they cried out in fear, Jesus spoke to them, reassuring them, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. The word, it is I, is the same wording as Exodus 3 when God spoke to Moses through the burning bush. Basically, Jesus is saying, I am is here. If that isn't reassuring, I don't know what is. Job 9.8 says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? The Lord of the universe, the Lord of creation, who has authority over sea and chaos, is here. So we don't need to fear. But Jesus knew the disciples were weak. And what a caring and kind consideration of our King to calm our fears, to meet us where we are. He could have said, pull yourself together. Do you even realize who I am? Come on. Instead, he is kind to us in our weakness. He knows we are dust, which makes me think of my daughter. We live right beside the train tracks and it is really loud. When the train comes by suddenly, she gasps in fear and comes running to me. I could say, it's just a train. Jesus could say, it's just a storm. But a kind mother says, it's okay, honey. You're safe. You don't need to fear. I'm here with you. And I imagine that's a similar effect it had on the disciples' hearts. And this must have bolstered Peter's faith because he, in true Peter fashion, just went for it. He asked Jesus to call him out on the water too in the middle of the storm. I wonder what that would have been like to step out on the water. It makes me think of the time I went zip lining. I was all strapped in and ready to go. The instructor said, okay, whenever you're ready, jump. 
and I stalled. <laughs> if you haven't gone ziplining before, it's up to you to take the first step. And that first step goes against all survival instincts. My brain is like, are you serious? I'm supposed to jump off this 30-foot landing with nothing but trees and solid ground below? So I can imagine Peter felt that adrenaline rush when he stepped off the boat and onto the water. I like to say he walked to Jesus and they had a party on the water. But no, verse 30 says, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Peter trusted in Jesus' power, but when he stopped looking to Jesus, that is when he started to fall. Ladies, how often does this happen to us? We are set on following Jesus with confidence, and then the storms of life come into view and we falter. It reminds me of the phrase, walk by faith and not by sight. Peter cried out for help, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately took hold of him. I love that image. It's so personal. There's so many Psalms that speak of God's rescuing, God rescuing those who cry out to him. In Psalm 144, 7, it says, Stretch out your hand from on high, rescue me, and deliver me from many waters. Jesus took hold of Peter and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, this verse can be misused. I want to pause here just to caution you. Jesus isn't saying, Peter, you should have mustered up more faith. Often we transfer this to our setting saying, I just need to muster up more faith. If I had enough faith, then I'd be healed, or this would all end. This mentality skews faith. It makes it dependent on what we can muster up. It's not the measure of your faith that is most important. What matters most is the object of your faith. Jesus called Peter's faith little because he took his eyes off Jesus and put it on the wind. Your faith is only strong when the object of your faith is strong. So for example, let's look back to the zip lining as an analogy. When you're strapped to the zip line, you can have all the faith in the world that the equipment will get you from point A to point B. But if one of the straps breaks, it doesn't matter how much faith you have in the line in that moment, it is broken and you're going down. You can have all the faith in the world in something, but if it isn't worthy of your trust, then it doesn't matter. Hebrews 12 tells us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes on Christ and your faith will be constant. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Back to the storm. In verse 32, we see another miracle. As Jesus got into the boat, the storm was silenced. This is where I think the coin finally dropped. Clink. The disciples had just witnessed Jesus feed thousands of people, walk on water, and stop a perilous storm for the second time. These are all things that only God can do. This leads them to worship Jesus and proclaim that he is really the son of God. This is the first time we see a confession like this from the disciples in the book of Matthew. Right belief leads to right worship. I love how David Platt puts it again. Jesus not only stills the storms, but he also uses them as a pathway to greater revelation of himself in our lives. God used the storm to give the disciples a deeper revelation of Christ that wouldn't have happened if they were sitting on the side of the sea talking. 
Trials help us see Jesus more clearly. His presence is so much sweeter in the midst of pressure. And I'm sure we can all think of a time when God revealed himself through a storm. For me, it was the first months of motherhood. It was during those late anxious nights trying to calm my baby that I realized my insufficiency. I lifted my eyes from the challenges of newborn life and looked to God for help. It was there that I saw God as a kind and tender loving father who cared for me in my struggles. His grace got me through moment by moment. How has God used the storm to reveal himself to you? Often through trials, our faith is strengthened because we better understand the object of our faith. The one in whom we put our faith never falters. He will take hold of you and never let you go. That leads us to the last couple verses of Matthew 14. The fruitful soil of Genesaret, 34 to 36. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Genesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched, it were made well. Well, this chapter ends on a high. The disciples and Jesus sail into the air of Genesaret, the west shore of the Sea of Galilee. I didn't know this before studying, but Genesaret is Hebrew for fertile garden. And turns out it was true to its name for more than one reason. Genesaret was known for its luscious gardens and exotic fruits. It was covered in fertile ground and many plants flourished there. And when the people saw Jesus, they immediately brought their sick. They had faith Jesus would heal them even by simply touching the fringe of his garment. I can only imagine how packed the crowds would have been with people wanting to touch Jesus in hopeful desperation. In Matthew 9, we read of a similar situation where the woman suffering from years of bleeding was healed by touching Jesus's garment. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. The people of Genesaret had hearts of fertile soil, just like their land. And this is in direct contrast to Herod's family, who we read about at the beginning of the chapter. So in conclusion, this chapter opened with the rejection and closed with faith in Jesus. We see Jesus' compassion toward the crowds and his authority over creation. We saw his humanity and his divinity. We saw his saving power and desire to satisfy our souls. As the disciples saw Jesus more clearly, their worship of him deepened. And we see God's provision in our, as we see God's provision in our lives and receive deeper revelation of him through trials, our faith is also strengthened. So that brings me back to the question, where are your eyes fixed? In this trial, are you looking to Jesus, the object of your faith, or are you distracted by your circumstances? If you are like me, Looking at Jesus can be easier said than done when the waves are so high and daunting. How can we keep our eyes fixed on him? Well, we need to keep keep him at the forefront of our thoughts. We can do this by reading the Bible, which helps shape our hearts and minds to what is true about God and our circumstances. We can deepen our understanding of who Jesus is by listening to Bible teaching. 
We can confess our struggles with another sister, encourage one another. How about meditating on scripture, printing out a verse, sticking it to the mirror or above the sink to bring our thoughts back to Christ and not our circumstances? May God give us faith to persevere through the storms. I want to leave you with this encouragement from Isaiah 43, 1-2. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not, be con- not, shall not consume you. When Jesus left earth, his parting words to his disciples were, I will be with you even to the end of the age. If you trust in Jesus, whatever you are facing, God is with you. May your soul be encouraged. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and what it reveals about you. Thank you that you are unchanging and constant and an anchor for our souls. Thank you that you promise to be with us. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We are dependent on your grace. Jesus, help us face each moment looking to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us today. Next week, Karen will be leading us through chapter 15, where we will learn how Jesus is Jesus turns expectations upside down as he addresses man-made traditions and what's, is, what, is, what true faith is. Well, hopefully we will be able to join again next week. Take care.